She may be the face I can't forget A trace of pleasure or regret Maybe my treasure or the price I have to pay She may be the song the summer sings Maybe the chill the autumn brings Maybe a hundred different things Within the measure of a day She may be the beauty or the beast May be the famine or the feast May turn each day into a heaven or a hell Hello and welcome to the Leftfield Show. My name's Joe Greenwoods. Hope you're all doing well this week. Um, this week we're going to be talking about the new... David Fincher film Gone Girl and I'm also going to be talking about the Maurice PLR film We Won't Grow Old Together. Um, small warning, um, I'm not going to withhold spoilers uh, of Gone Girl so if you haven't seen it I recommend not listening to the review. Um, what I'll do is in the description of the episode I'll give you the time where you can skip forward to and uh, skip over the review if you uh, if you feel like it. Uh, so I will be giving away the big plot points of the film. Um, so yeah, let's get straight into it and talk about perhaps the most controversial film of the year so far, David Fincher's Gone Girl. Based off of Gillian Flynn's 2012 novel, David Fincher has really, I think, produced his, So I would say maybe his trashiest film to date. Um, it follows a couple, Nick and Amy Dunn, who have to relocate to Missouri after living in New York and being successful writers after they're laid off during the recession. And then we open on the day of their fifth wedding anniversary. And on this day, Amy disappears. And from there, we see a split narrative of Nick trying to find out where she's gone, what happened to her, dealing with the media fallout of what happens, of her disappearing and the police investigation, as well as her tale of their marriage up to that point of disappearing. And at first it's this typical boy meets girl in New York, fall in love, get married. She talks about like the highs and lows of it all. And then progressively as it gets towards the day of her disappearing, it gets worse and worse and worse from her perspective. And you get to the day of her disappearing and then there's a switch in the film about an hour in where you realise she's not, she's disappeared and she's not dead but she's actually set it up to make it look like that he killed her. Because as you've seen it from his perspective, he thinks she's disappeared and is trying with the police to figure it out. 
every turn that they take, it's looking more and more like he did it. But she's engineered it as such to be the other way for many reasons. One of them is that uh, he's cheating on her with one of uh, his students. Um, he teaches creative writing at a local college. Uh, and then he's also taken her some of the money from her trust fund that her parents have set up for her and set up a bar with his sister. That trust fund, by the way, was the money came together from her parents writing books called Amazing Amy based on a somewhat fictitious version of their own daughter. There's a scene in the movie where uh, she explains what how the character developed in these books. For example, uh, she's saying, oh, um, at age eight I gave up uh, tennis. In the book, Amy won a tennis tournament. Uh, age 10, I gave up playing the piano. Age 10, amazing Amy in the book, whatever, did a piano recital and was amazing. So it feels, so her parents sort of made money off of correcting their own real-life daughter's mistakes. So this is a deeply, slightly fucked up character. I mean, fucked up for many reasons. Russellman Pike plays Amy in this, and she is going full Betty Davis, all-out camp, <laughs> all emotions on her face, and then no emotions at the same time. She's It's a really quite incredible performance, I think. It, um, it, it, at times it is, you know, she's very emotive, and then at times she reminds me of um, uh, Eyes Without Her Face, um, the that French horror movie with the girl with the mask, it just, it, she's just so plain, just blank at times. Um, uh, and then you also have Ben Affleck playing the American Everyman, which he kind of does in quite a few films. And he is actually very, very good, I think. He's um, very, uh, he's very Affleck, if, if that's the only way I can really put it. Uh, so they give these two sort of central performances at the heart of it. And then there's also uh, Neil Patrick Harris plays Amy's former boyfriend, who she takes solace in when her plan starts to fall apart. Um, so there's there's quite a few interesting performances. And Fincher is it's kind of Fincher's most restrained film in a lot of ways. Um, it's very... It's not very showy. It's, just, it's very cool and disconnected. It's very much a... a Jeff Cronenworth uh, was the DOP on this and they've worked together quite a few times. But I think almost exclusively they've worked together since Benjamin Button, since The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Stylistically, it's very on point and Trent Reznor's score is very good as well. So performance wise and uh, everything like on the screen is very very much on point and the script is actually very good. Uh, Gillian Flynn adapted it herself and the film moves along at a fair old pace. Um, the one thing that's troubling me about the film and it has troubled quite a few other people is the some of the politics of it are a bit off. Friend of the show, Rob Pollard, uh, actually called me up after seeing the film and um, expressed his displeasure 
at the film, and in particular the politics of it. And he brought up two instances in the film which I thought, which I agreed with him on, that were particularly dodgy. Um, the first of which was the was the way how um, there's a news reporter in the film who immediately starts to question um, Nick Dunn's motives in the disappearance of Amy and her potential death. And she is known for defending women, this, this news reporter. And from minute one, she's known as this person who always defends women. And from the first time she appears on screen, she's portrayed as a crazy person. That she is someone who is crazy and is just not to be trusted. Which is dodgy, because seeing how in real life there aren't that many people who actually do do that who do defend women at every corner, who will give them a voice. And then you compare it to the character of Tanner Bolt, as played by Tyler Perry, uh, and he's a lawyer who is known for defending indefensible men. Men who are just... They're going to go to prison, and he always gets them off. He always makes sure that they don't go to prison, that they're proven innocent. And he is shown as this white knight character. He's this, you know, knight in shining armour. He's going to save the day. He's the hero. Okay, those two portrayals are dodgy in, its, in itself. Um, but then when you add to it how rape is shown in the film as this defence mechanism that Amy can just go into and just deal with is, is, is kind of shocking. You know, she's kind of this wounded animal and she uses it as a way to get out of things. Which is a poisonous message to put out there that there, there's a woman out there who could do it. Obviously it's fictitious. But that's the power of media is that it can have these effects on people. Now, I don't think I would have these issues with the film if there were enough films that did this who did the story but they portrayed it the other way where you know where rape actually has very serious consequences or not so much that but it's not just used as a plot device which is the ultimate issue I, I have with Gone Girl um, of course those portrayals, though, end up being proven right. The idea that the newscaster was wrong and a bit screwy. Tanner Bolt was the hero. It just continues that sort of cycle that keeps going round. It's, it's frankly a, a bit of a worry. But aside from those issues, the film is immensely entertaining. There's no two ways about it. It will draw you in from the first minute. However, the politics are dodgy. Now, I don't really buy into the idea of a guilty pleasure when it comes to art um, but maybe this is a bit of a guilty pleasure more for my political senses I guess and my political feelings this it's very it, it very much rubs up against me in, in a, not in a good way um, and I guess that's the whole thing with David Fincher films is they they do make you feel uneasy but I feel like the unease created here was not justified. 
as it was in his other work. Released in 1972, uh, Maurice Pialas, uh, we won't go all together, has lost none of its potency in the last 40 odd years since its release. Follows the relationship of Catherine and Jean, as played by Marlene Jobert and Jean Yan. Um, Jean is a documentary filmmaker, and Catherine is a sort of office worker, just uh, secretary, I think. Uh, she is in the film. And the film follows their relationship in a very fractured manner. The film jumps forward through their relationship at uncountable sort of periods of time. Um, and it shows the relationship in such in quite a harsh way. Um, PLR is known for this sort of slightly distant sort of camera work. He's quite uh, flat with some of the staging of the, the films, uh, some, some of the scenes. And then his editing is very harsh. He doesn't give you timestamps, really. He doesn't give you signifiers of how much time has passed. Um, and as such, the relationship can seem very, very much up and down, but he doesn't really give you, um, I wouldn't say superfluous scenes, but that's all those superfluous scenes that kind of knit things together. It kind of just shows you the meat of it. Um, so, for example, there, there will be a scene where the, they're arguing on the streets of Paris, like getting into a blazing round, Jean is a pretty much a pig of a man. He's a real brute. Um, and he, um, Jean Yan actually kind of looks like Pierre Lars. So this kind of feels like there's some autobiographical stuff in there. And he plays a filmmaker, but they can be arguing on the streets of Paris, just, screaming at each other and then the very next scene they can be walking hand in hand on the beach madly in love um it's a very it can be very off-putting um and it can make his work very much hard to break into as well it feels like he's got um it feels like he's keeping you at an arm's distance or just like oh you think you feel this way about these characters right now well get a load of this next scene and so you see this relationship go up and down in very much sharp turns, you know. It's, he doesn't ease you into it. And because of the editing style and because of how it's shot, it kind of feels like of someone looking back. Because we see most of it through Jean. We see any scene that, um, that only has one of them in it, it's always just him. You only ever see her with him. So it feels like he's looking back on this relationship. And the film has this very much this sort of picture book quality to it. It feels like someone is flipping through a book of old pictures at an old love, trying to figure out where it went wrong. And because of this technique that Pierre has, where he pushes you away and keeps pushing you away, that when he does finally draw you in, where Jean really... 
starts to realise what he did wrong and how he was wrong to her. And how he was kind of a bad match for her. The, the title is, really does give the whole film away. We won't grow old together. They're not going to grow old together. They're really not meant for each other. But they do love each other a lot. But it does have this feel of someone reminiscing about past mistakes and thinking, why couldn't I just have been a bit of a nicer guy around that time? Um, I recommend it as such because it's... It, the film came out at an interesting time as well. It's this sort of post-French New Wave French cinema of the 70s. It's We've had, you had guys like Godard and Truffaut and Claude Chabrol and even Bresson. I feel like this film is kind of owes the most to Bresson in a lot of ways. It's very much a sort of bare portrayal um, of a couple. And it's so you've had these innovators beforehand, so how do you keep pushing the medium forward? How do you keep changing things? How do you keep experimenting? But uh, PLR's language is one that's totally unique to him. I, don't, I haven't really ever seen a filmmaker do something similar to this. Um, and that's why I find his work so fascinating. And that's why I think most people should try and watch his work. So yeah, that's, those are my thoughts on We Won't Grow All Together. And I think it does make a nice, well, not a nice, but um, uh, an apt combination with Gone Girl. It's about love between two people that really shouldn't be together. And, uh, about why it's, I think, finding someone who loves you for who you are and all your flaws is so difficult. But when you do find that person, it's perhaps the most rewarding feeling you can have. Leftfield Shanks, as some of you may know, is part of the Holdfast network. Yes, it is. I'm actually on a network. Someone asked me to come onto a network and put this on there, which is surprising. Yeah, Holdfast network, as founded by Jack McEnroy. Uh, you can hear his podcast, uh, South London Hardcore, all about South London. It's actually very, very good. I recommend it. Um, this week's episode is on uh, the Cinema Museum. Which might be up my alley. <laughs> um, so, yeah, give that a listen. That's very good. And then also, uh, Steve from the South London Hardcore, he has a, his own podcast called Process, which is about, uh, which has creators uh, discuss the mechanics of comics and uh, creating comic books. I recommend it. It's actually very, very good. Um, uh, I haven't listened to the latest episode. It's got uh, Owen Pomery on. I don't know who that is. But uh, I recommend it. That's a good listen. And then also, Forward the Hamlet. Uh, I say every Tuesday, that's on Dulwich Hamlet Football Club. Um, I haven't listened to that. Who I don't know who hosts that. Who does host that? Never mind, I'll find out. But I recommend it. Go on to the holdfastnetwork.com. It's good. <laughs> there's good stuff on there. There's good stuff on there, and then there's also the left field show.
Okay. Oh, yes, my favourite part from e- of any episode. Listener questions. Mm, mm. Okay. Uh, I actually got this question the other day, and I was so excited when I got it. I started recording it uh, straight away. So this is what it was. Uh, which films released in the last five years or so do you think will be looked back on as classics in 30 years' time? Sort of how Taxi Driver and Raging Bull seem new. Now, when I recorded this before this answer, it was, frankly, unseemly, to say the least. Um, I think I listed something like close to 40 films. So what I decided to do is limit myself to just 10. Um, and so I'll just quickly go through them. These, these 10 films that I think in 30 years' time will be looked upon as great films. Um, the first of which is uh, Nuri Bilger Jalan's um, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Um, this sort of Turkish crime film is so methodical and harsh yet very beautiful. The lighting in the film, he has used this golden lighting in it that's um, very haunting. And some of the images just have stayed with me. So I can just see these scenes playing out in detail, like this this wonderful scene where what well, the film revolves around the police taking this murderer to try and find a body that he buried in the middle of nowhere. And they go around in the countryside at night trying to find it. They stop over in this town and this the mayor of the town says, come in, come eat. And um, they're eating. And after they eat, the mayor's daughter comes around after they're all just, they're all sort of sitting in silence and she brings them tea. And she's just lit, almost, it's almost like a religious painting, how she's lit, and how she goes around from man to man, giving them something to drink, and it's just, I can just see it, and I can see their reactions to her in this scene. It's just a really incredible film. Um, next one I have is Martha Marcy May Marlene, uh, Sean Durkin's first film. And I remember the first time I saw it, it was at London Film Festival, and it was at The View in Leicester Square, and I had the shittiest seat. It was way over to the left in the second row. So I was right at the front, basically. And, um, but it was just mesmerising, this film. It was just, so, maybe so uncomfortable. And uh, John Hawkins is, uh, John, John Hawkins, John Hawkes is um, superb in it. Really, really superb. I think that's a film that will, stick around for a long time. And the editing in that film is superb. Really great match on action uh, editing. Uh, the next is Dogtooth. Uh, I'm not sure why, apart from the fact that it's really uncomfortable and unnerving, and I think it will be something that is sort of passed around as this sort of great underseen European movie of, of this time. Um, but yeah, again, the performances are so committed. The, the, there's a really fantastic scene where one of the daughters does the, the dance from Flashdance, and it's sort of... Because the, the kid, these kids in the film are grown up, but they've never seen the outside world, so they sort of like... have this weird arrested development, but she sees one scene from Flashdance. So she does the famous dance, and it's just you can see that this person's had this one bite of the, of the apple that is pop culture, and she's just she just loved it. 
and just that drug has just hooked its way into her and uh, it's hard to get rid of once you fully dive into it. Uh, the Great Beauty uh, is the next one. Much like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, just scenes have just stayed with me to just I can just see the scenes in great detail. I remember where I was sitting when I saw it. I remember how I was looking at the screen. Um, I just, I think it's just so, yeah, again, just beautiful and haunting. It's, it's very much something that will stick with me. There's just, there's the scene that I always think about is there's this party with these bourgeois Italians and, um, there's this little girl there who does these amazing paintings and she's sort of reared by her parents to be this painter. And um, she does what she does is oh, she's got this massive canvas in front of her and she picks up paint, she starts screaming and she throws the paint at the canvas and splatters everywhere. She's screaming, she's just throwing paint at the canvas. Just everyone's just looking at her in silence. And as this is happening, uh, the main character is played by Tony Sevilla just walks off and he's just walking through this museum with two of his friends and they're just looking at like these sculptures. Um, and it's all shot by almost sort of like a handheld torch and just you get just snippets of of what they're doing in, in this light and it just the light only catches part part of what they're doing. And then you come back to it and the, I remember the shot, it cranes over the people and then you just see the canvas and the paint has all just been morphed beautifully into this sort of tonal mood piece um yeah i just uh, that scene has just stayed with me it's just so beautiful uh what's the next one here the master paul thomas anderson's the master I, no real need to go into why this is considered a great film i don't think everyone kind of thinks it everyone kind of anointed it as such day day it was released so um yeah and i uh, i so thankful I got to see that on 70mm, it's just incredible. Uh, next is Oslo, August 31st. Um, yeah, again, with all of these films, I can remember where I was when I saw them for the first time. I think that's what's so powerful about them all. Um, actually, and I can just remember specific scenes in such great detail from them. I think that's kind of what makes a great film. I can never remember plots of the film, but I can always remember how they made me feel. I remember the characters, I remember scenes, I remember lines of dialogue, and it just become a part of you, I think. That's what great movies can do, I think. Um, yeah, I recommend just watching that film with as little knowledge as possible. It's just um, incredible. Really, really beautiful. Uh, next is A Serious Man the Coen Brothers film. Um, just immensely funny and weird. That's, uh, that's the seventh film I've picked. Um, I, just, uh, I remember that opening the, the most, that that, um, that parable the Coen Brothers made up. I remember that, and I also remember the, um, the, the bar mitzvah where the son is just unbelievably stoned and he's having to do his bar mitzvah. That was um, that was a very good scene. I thought uh, the next is like father, like son, which really just hit me 
as hard as a film can hit you. It's it was so beautiful and upsetting and uh, sad. It's um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. Again, I just highly recommend it. It's um, yeah, it's one. It's definitely one for those of you that have daddy issues. So I recommend it. <laughs> Uh, the next is Boyhood, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Uh, I did a whole episode on that, so I don't really need to go into into great deal. And last of all is um, La Quattro Volte, which, um, yeah, again, I can remember where I was. I actually didn't even want to see it. My dad kind of convinced me to see it. I wasn't really that bothered. It, it looked a bit... Um, like hard work and I didn't, you know, and I don't mind films that are hard work, but I just didn't feel like watching something that was hard work. I remember going to the Renoir cinema and seeing it. And, um, what happens is the story just follows life and it just gets relayed from person to person or object to object. Cause one of the characters is a sheepdog. The next is a lamb. The next is, uh, no, uh, it goes a sheepdog, then a farmer, then a baby lamb, and then a tree, and you just follow the just these these characters going from just following this circle of life over a year, and um, yeah, that's I know it sounds bizarre, but I highly recommend it. It really stirred something in me that um, I didn't think it would. It was just um, very surprising. So yeah, those are my recommendations. Those are what I think will be considered great films in 30 years' time. Uh, let's do a quick one. Top five cinematographers. Um, Darius Kanji. I think he's fantastic. Robert Elswit. Very, very good as well, I think. Um, Robert Elswit's just a superb cinematographer. Um, who else? Oh, uh, God. Um, oh, heck, top five cinemas. You have to have um, Emmanuel Lubezki in there. He's just fantastic cinematographer. Um, who else? Just trying to think. I'll go with Jeff Cronenworth as well. I think he's very, very good. His work with Fincher is very good. And... How about, um, I'll tell you what really had, uh, which I thought was quite a, a beautiful film, was Mud, the Jeff Nichols film. It was the, Adam Stone was the cinematographer of that. I don't really know what other work has he done. I thought that was a really impressive film. Oh, he did Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter and Compliance as well. So there we go. Adam Stone. That's uh, those. Those are top five off off the top of my head. that was this week's edition of the left field show uh thank you 
very much for uh, listening. You can send in questions uh, to holdfastnetwork.com forward slash askjoe. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the piss off. Apparently, it's good for the podcast. I don't know much about this, but if you rate rate it and uh, leave a review, apparently that's good. So if you feel like doing that, then um, go right ahead. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about Alex Ross Perry's "Listen Up, Philip," and I'll probably also talk about. Woody Allen's Husbands and Wives, because uh, I've read an interview somewhere that uh, where Alex Ross Perry said that that film was a big influence on his new film. Uh, so yeah, that's this week's podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed it, and speak to you next week. you